It is Monday, January 15th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, new data show that the well-being of children of color in Arkansas ranks low. It really helps us look at, well, what is the difference for a child living in Arkansas? Plus, Gregory Peck and a major TV miniseries came to Fayetteville. With an all-star cast led by Oscar winners Gregory Peck and Geraldine Page, it's a sweeping tale of Civil War action in the blue and the gray. Remembering the filming of the blue and the gray 40 years ago. And the return of the Arkansas Black Film and Music Expo. If we had to nail down one event that kind of um, sums up our mission to bring art and culture, black black art and culture no, no, uh, to North West Arkansas, it's probably this event. Before that, the news from NPR. Little Wing presents Old Crow Medicine Show coming to the City Auditorium in Eureka Springs with special guest Willie Watson, January 20th. Old Crow Medicine Show at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs. Tickets at tickets.thundertix.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, January 15th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Good Martin Luther King Jr. holiday to you today. First up, this week, the Annie E. Casey Foundation released its Race for Results report, which looks at the well-being of children across different racial and ethnic backgrounds in each state. The report put Arkansas at 42nd overall out of 46. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more details on what the rankings mean for kids in Arkansas. Since 2014, the Annie E. Casey Foundation has compared the well-being of children of different races in each state according to a list of 12 indicators, ranging from subsets like early childhood, education, family, and community. The 2024 report showed that children of all races fared worse in Arkansas than in other states, with the exception of American Indians or Alaskan Natives. On an index of 1,000, the report gave black children in Arkansas a score of just 299. Leslie Boissier is the vice president of external affairs for Annie E. Casey and says the latest study shows that black, native, and Hispanic kids are consistently at a disadvantage in the U.S. And if you look at the indicators, um, the United States as a nation is um, not sufficiently equipping any group to succeed. Mm -hmm. And so for kids of color in the U.S., you know, what did the data show? Where were those big discrepancies? And could you break down some of those for me? Sure. In um, five of the indicators in the report for black kids, for native kids, and the Latino kids, there's a 10-point delta versus the national average. And that's fourth grade reading proficiency, which we know is a key indicator of whether or not a kid will graduate from high school on time. Eighth grade math proficiency, whether or not a young person completes an associate degree or higher, which is a predictor of, of their future earnings and income and financial stability, as well as poverty measures like the percentage of um, kids who are living with the family at or above the federal poverty line or living in areas of high concentrations of poverty. In all of those areas, Black, Native, and Latino kids had outcomes that weren't as great um, as other kids and um, were significantly lower than the national average. 
And one of the discrepancies, so I'm based in Arkansas, and I know one of our statistics that was kind of alarming was low birth weight. Um, it was high across the board for a lot of Arkansans, but it was significantly higher among black children. And I'm wondering, you know, can you just talk about that measure specifically, low birth weight? You know, why look at that? What does it indicate? That's an important measure, Daniel. We know that children who are born at least um, at five and a half pounds, which is considered a normal birth weight, birth weight, are less likely to have developmental delays and are more likely to do well in school. So it, it sets um, kids, babies, if you will, on a trajectory to do well going forward. And you're right, on average in Arkansas, you were right about at the national average, but for um, black kids in particular, it was seven points below, so 90% overall, 90.5 overall for kids in Arkansas, but only 83.3% of um, black babies in Arkansas were born at a normal birth weight. So an, another area for um, investments to make sure that at that earliest point in life, kids are, are invested in and positioned so that they can succeed. And then uh, I was wondering if you had any other data just from from Arkansas. I know we ranked close to the bottom. I think we were on 42. Um, were there any other uh, maybe state-specific data that, that popped out to you? Well, one of the, the things about Arkansas is for every group except Asian and Pacific Islanders, the index was below the national average. So a significant opportunity to invest in all kids and all racial and ethnic groups and to do it in a targeted way. If you look at um, uh, for, uh, eighth grade math scores in particular, Arkansas was about seven points below the national average. So at 19, only 19%, one in five um, eighth graders are proficient in math in Arkansas compared to one in four nationally, which is still a really low percentage. And for black and Latino kids, only 6% of black kids and 12% of Latino kids were proficient in math. Mm -hmm. So a, they, the earliest years, the investment in elementary education, making sure that no matter what community or what neighborhood a child grows up in, that they, they're able to get a solid education and, have, and, and go to strong schools with good teachers and have the resources that they need to start off on a path to success early in life. And, you know, this report's been going on since about 2014, like you said. Um, you know, why is it important to look at this data, and, and what, how have those trends sort of changed since that initial Race for Results report? Well, we've seen improvement in six of 11 indicators over the 10-year period for all groups. So we know we are making progress. Um, unfortunately, we're not seeing the gaps close for kids of color. And we know that in order to have a strong workforce and a strong economy at this time where a small majority of kids are kids of color and when one in four children are living in an immigrant family, it's incredibly important that we invest in kids of all race and ethnic groups so that they're all positioned to succeed in school and in work and in life. And so, you know, when you're looking at this data, when people are reading this report, what are the policy changes or the actions that need to take place to, to make these, to raise these scores up or to address some of those root causes that kids are facing? Well, the good news is that we know what policies are effective based on data and evidence. For example, um, there was significant investment in um, the child tax credit, expansion of the child tax credit during the pandemic era. era. 
and we saw a reduction of millions of kids who were elevated out of poverty. More than 800,000 black kids, more than a million Latino kids, and more than 700,000 white kids were elevated from poverty because of this one program. And the significance of that is that we, we know um, from data and evidence that kids do well when they're raised in a financially stable household. So providing financial supports to, for the family is critically important. Unfortunately, that policy was allowed to lapse, and there are 19 million kids who don't have the full benefit of the child tax credit. So it's one example of a, a policy that can be invested in to provide a foundation for all kids so that they can, they can do well and they can succeed. And then for someone, just, you know, maybe an average Arkansan, a parent or someone who hears about this study or reads this study, what would you like them to take away from this? It's important that we all engage in the future of our children. Our country can only grow and prosper. We can only have a strong workforce, which leads to a strong economy. If we invest in all kids and we ensure the success of all kids, and that requires the, the leaders within the community, it requires parents, it requires school system leaders, it requires that everyone do their part and invest to make sure that kids can succeed. So to get some local perspective on this data, we reached out to Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, which uses these reports on child well-being to develop and lobby policy measures at the state legislature. Maricela Garcia is the Race Equity Director for Advocacy at Arkansas Advocates, and she says sweeping reports like this one are valuable and rare. These scores are out of a thousand, and I mean, even if you look across states, nobody's at a thousand. You know, the highest number I think is like the low 800s, maybe. Um, but we are way below that, and it really helps us look at well, what is the difference for a child living in Arkansas versus a child living in another state. And what, what are those policies that we need to address? And she says the most striking result was the low birth weight indicator among black children. When we look at low birth weight, it's a really important sort of indicator because it's, it's you know, like the earliest indicator you get about the child, but it ties to a lot of things. Things like health, disability, learning, and later education outcomes. And Garcia says the root causes are tied to health care access in Arkansas, especially for pregnant women and new mothers. Uh, you know, Arkansas has one of the worst maternal mortality rates, um, and it's much worse for black women. We are the worst, I think, at this point um, for infant mortality rates. One of the things that we need to make sure is that people have access to Medicaid immediately. So Arkansas currently has been in the news for the issues around unwinding. And with all of those case reviews and things, applications are taking longer to process. So, and pregnant women don't get a priority in there. Pregnant women should be able to go to the front of the line so they have access immediately to health care because we know the sooner you have access to health during your pregnancy, the better your pregnancy outcomes are. For Arkansas to see these indicator rankings improve, Garcia believes it will take specific policy changes like expanding Medicaid, increasing WIC enrollment, and providing safety nets for vulnerable mothers. 
And she says when it comes to making those policy changes, people shouldn't just look to the federal government, but to local and state officials. People need to remember that while the federal government funds these things to the states, it's the states that make the decisions about how you get your benefits. So when we look at these disparities between states and why one kid is living a better life than a kid here, um, it's because of the policies that are made at the local level. You can find the full Race for Results report at AECF.org. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Ahead on today's show, convincing Hollywood to film a major TV miniseries in Fayetteville. i got a place I believe we can shoot the entire thing within a distance of 30 miles of the place. And he said, where is that? And I said, well, this weekend while I was home in Arkansas, I went to North and saw and I took these pictures. And I put them down in front of him. He started looking at them. He looked up at me and he said, where is Arkansas? Prior Center Archives takes us back to the filming of The Blue and the Gray later this hour. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is entering year two of her administration and spent some time reflecting on her work so far with Roby Brock from our partner Talk Business and Politics on KARK's Capital View. Sanders says that education was one of her big, ambitious priorities, and she's confident the Department of Education will be able to implement the LEARNS Act well. I've said for a long time, if at the end of all this I can be known for one thing, I'd like to be uh, the state and probably the country's education governor. I think we're off to a really good start. In August of 2025, all Arkansas students will be eligible to use voucher funding towards non-public schooling as part of the new law. At this point, no forecasted budget has been announced for how much this will cost the state. Governor Sanders says there's no hard and fast number at this point because it's not clear just how many people may participate in the voucher program called Educational Freedom Accounts. But based off of what we've seen um, in places where they've opened up other uh, universal choice and education similar to education freedom accounts, um, we feel comfortable with where we are. The big thing, though, in at the end of the day, while we want people to be able to be empowered to make decisions about where and what is best for their kids and how they should be educated, at the same time, we've invested heavily in public education. A bigger, I would say, investment historically than we have in the last couple of decades in the move that we've made. A lot of students will still, their first choice and best choice will still be the public school in their community. We expect that to continue. Um, And that's why it was important not just to open this up, but also to make changes and investments in our public schools so that they continue to get better as well. Sanders was also asked about two of her most discussed controversies during her first year, the tension with the Arkansas Board of Corrections and the $19,000 lectern. Former Corrections Secretary Joe Perfiri was fired by the board earlier this month, and Sanders announced she will be bringing him onto her staff to work as a senior advisor. She says the Board of Corrections has fought her every step of the way. They were against us on the PROTECT Act. We requested to make expansion for beds. Every single thing we're doing, we're looking for how do we do a better job protecting the people of Arkansas. And they fought us every step of the way and kind of kicked off a little bit of an adversarial relationship. Certainly not what I would like to see, not what I want to see going forward, but ultimately... I'm 
responsible for enacting policies that are going to make people safer. The governor had plenty of ink spilled over the controversy of the lectern, as well as the opaque details surrounding its purchase and delivery. Sanders was asked what she would have done differently about the lectern. I I think our team followed every rule and protocol, and so I, I don't think there's anything necessarily that I would have done differently at this point. The lectern has not been seen since September 26th, when members of the press were invited to the state capitol to view and photograph it. Ozarks at Large has sent multiple requests to speak to Joseph Wood, the chair of the Republican Party of Arkansas, as well as Seth Mays, the executive director, since September, about the current whereabouts of the lectern and to see photos of the accompanying travel case. Those emails and phone calls have not been answered. Last week, the University of Arkansas's Office for Entrepreneurship and Innovation and Cartwheel Studio announced the inaugural cohort of the Bounds Accelerator, a Northwest Arkansas-based technology startup accelerator. A business accelerator is similar to an incubator as they both provide environments and resources to help small businesses grow. However, an accelerator works with established companies and compresses years' worth of learning into a few months-long program. The Bounds Accelerator will specifically cater to companies that provide solutions to challenges within the retail, transportation, logistics, and supply chain sectors. The cohort is made up of 10 companies from across the country, including Northwest Arkansas-based Indexer, Hoshku, and Mycelium Networks. Over the next 16 weeks, business leaders will collaborate with weekly remote learning and mentoring sessions, learning from each other how to solve problems they are encountering while building their companies. Bounds will hold an in-person demo day on April 29th in Bentonville, allowing companies to show off what they gained from the program. You can visit their website for more information on the Bounds Accelerator and all the companies within the cohort. All that information is available at ozarksatlarge.com. With an all-star cast led by Oscar winners Gregory Peck and Geraldine Page, it's a sweeping tale of Civil War action in the blue and the gray. This is Ozarks at Large. That's a bit of not only Hollywood history, but Northwest Arkansas history. To help us explain that, Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Hello, Kyle. Thanks for having me back. Randy, thanks for coming in on this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. It's good to be here. So let's talk the blue and the gray. This was a CBS miniseries. that was Four parts, four eight parts hours. On television when miniseries was king. We'd have oh. Roots and Holocaust and Rich Man, Poor Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Thorn Birds, right? There were there were Shogun, mm-hmm. yeah. Whoa, uh, the Winds of War, that was a big one on ABC, right? Uh, which is where I was working at the time. But this was in 1981, and almost the entire eight-hour uh, film was shot right here in Northwest Arkansas, mm-hmm. all within uh, you know a radius of 50 miles of. Fayetteville and Fort Smith. And a lot of it within, either on or within the radius of the University of Arkansas campus. That's true. That's true. Um, But, you know, it caused a great deal of excitement, of course, up here uh, during the production. But I don't know if a lot of people know that it 
it did more than that. It ushered in sort of the era of filmmaking here in Arkansas. And there were several reasons for that that we'll go into today. Um, Now, there had been films made in Arkansas before this, but not of the level of studio investment. Right. I mean, even back in the 20s, there were films made here, and there were some lower-budget ones. Charles B. Pierce is a perfect example from Arkansas, an advertising guy. We've actually Mm -hmm. talked about him before on this program. Uh, And they've had, well, uh, Burt Reynolds did White Lightning here, and they even had uh, a made-for-TV movie on Central High, The Crisis at Central High, that was shot in the Little Rock area the year before. but Fighting this, Mad had been in Fayetteville and Bentonville with Peter Fonda. Right. But again, right. low, low budget. Right. This was the first or second big, big picture being done here. It caused a snowball effect, really. Uh, and it had to do with the location, uh, the people here, more importantly, the finances that, that we'll talk about. But this one was such a big deal that... Uh, when the, uh, the the deal was made, then Governor Frank White uh, called a news conference uh, to announce it. It's an eight-hour docudrama. It'll be the longest and most expensive production CBS has ever undertaken. The governor said $15 million will be spent on the project. Eight to $10 million of that will be spent in the state. White said the movie will be staged in northwest Arkansas near Fayetteville, Fort Smith, and Springdale, and the story will follow the lives of two families during the Civil War period. Arkansas was selected after visits were made to four or five other states. We're very proud, and the producers and the directors attribute Arkansas' selection to the readiness and cooperation of those people who were involved. 2,000 extras will be used in the film. Most will be Arkansans. Columbia Pictures has said there will be some premier stars in the cast, but their names have yet to be released. The governor and his aides are confident that this production will stimulate the economy. One reason is because Columbia Picture personnel will have to stay at motels here in Arkansas and also eat at the restaurants here. Another factor involved is that construction of movie sets will have to be built by two to three hundred Arkansas carpenters. It it really was a big local news story, and at the time, KETV had a full-time news bureau here in Fayetteville that covered Northwest Arkansas. So Philip Bruce, who was the reporter, covered it from start to finish. And um, here he is with one of the stories on, I guess you'd say, the the building of the production. And uh, here's the preview from Philip. Production crews from Columbia Pictures have been scouting for locations in western Arkansas for about a month now. In all, they will need more than 300 different sites to film the eight-hour miniseries. As it stands now, most of the film will be shot in northwest Arkansas, with much of it taking place in and around Fayetteville. The producer of the film, Harry Thomason, a former high school football coach from Little Rock, has found one possible location at an old home near Fayetteville's Mount Sequoia. Film crews will be shooting in western Arkansas at locations like this one for about three months. The project will cost Columbia Pictures more than $15 million, and the movie will employ more than 2,000 actors in speaking and non-speaking roles. We call for a lot of extras. Uh, We uh, reproduce uh, certain scenes from uh, uh, several of the major battles in the Civil War, and so we'll use uh, a lot of extras. In fact, within the next couple of weeks, we will have casting people in here that will begin to 
sort through the people. Uh, we're not only going to cast extras from here. I mean, we're going to cast speaking roles, and so they will be in first to cast what speaking roles we can in the show. You heard in that last report from Philip Bruce, uh, the producer, Harry Thompson, he did say he was from Little Rock. He's from Hampton. Mm -hmm. He was a uh, football coach there who got into films in the Little Rock area, but then moved out to L.A. And he started working for Columbia Pictures, and he worked for this British man, Seymour Friedman, uh, who was the president of production at Columbia. And his first job, or one of his first jobs, was to scout locations for this movie. And he traveled all over the country and would report back, and they really hadn't found the perfect place to shoot this. They, they looked at Kentucky, I think, and some other places. And Harry came home to Arkansas and during the weekend had come up to Fayetteville and he looked around and thought, why don't we just do it here? And he took a bunch of Polaroid pictures and he went back to L.A. And um, I got a hold of, of Harry, uh, who's a great friend to the Pryor Center mm -hmm. and to KATV. And uh, he tells the story about going to see his boss, Seymour Friedman. I flew back out here, and I had a bunch of Polaroid pictures, and I, I walked into Seymour's office, and uh, everybody was sort of scared of the guy, though he was sort of a sh short guy. He was just he was just tough, you know. And uh, and I walked into his office, and he said, yeah, Harry, what do you want? You got a new place you want to send us? And I said, yes, sir. I got a place I believe we can shoot the entire thing within a distance of 30 miles of the place. And he said, where is that? And I said, well, this weekend while I was home in Arkansas, I went to North and saw and I took these pictures. And I put them down in front of me. He started looking at them. He looked up at me and he said, where is Arkansas? <laughs> so I said, oh, it's in the U.S. <laughs> it's, it's not far. He said, I knew it was in the U.S. But, and so he said, we talked about it. He quizzed me on some things. And in the end, he said, okay, we don't even have to have everybody else in here. I'm going to tell you, you can shoot this picture in Arkansas. And But he said, I'll tell you one thing. If it doesn't work, you will never work in this town again. And that was the exact words. No pressure. No. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I said, yes, sir, and I walked out the door. You'll never work in this town again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, no pressure. Right. Yeah. yeah. But it, he pulled it off, and it paid off. Um, and like you said, the biggest name in the picture was Gregory Peck, uh, Oscar winner. And this is funny. Um, Harry told me this, is that Peck had never done television before, and he was a little skeptical to do it, but he had always uh, revered uh, Abraham Lincoln, and had one of his goals in life as an actor was to play him. He's always been a great hero to me. I've always longed for the opportunity to try to play him, although it's... Uh, it is a bit intimidating for an ordinary uh, mortal 
to try to give a decent representation on the stage or on the screen of a mythic figure and an authentic American genius. One feels uh, inadequate, to say the least. Anyway, during this fall of 81, uh, they were shooting all over Fayetteville, all over Fort Smith, and it ends up everybody's happy. Hollywood's happy. Uh, Arkansas's happy. So here's Philip Bruce again uh, wrapping up sort of the whole shoot and project. All right, are we ready? With only a few days of shooting left, the Columbia crew will spend the rest of its time here filming the scenes that will occur near the end of the movie. Today, on a hilltop not far from Razorback Stadium, General Robert E. Lee paid a last farewell to his Confederate troops. Except for a few scenes like this one, the blue and the gray is complete. The cast and crew will be pulling out of town in less than a week. They will be missed because over the past four months, these people have helped the area survive the recession in style. Since they've been in town, the movie people have been spending about $20,000 a day. All of that money adds up naturally enough, and by the time Columbia leaves, the company will have pumped between five and $10 million into the local economy. The movie people are going away happy. Producer Harry Thomason, a native of Little Rock, says the area has been ideal in terms of good locations and cooperative people. I mean, it's been sort of the perfect marriage between the, the film crew and the community, and, and it's been wonderful. Several of our guys have bought property here. Several are contemplating buying summer homes here, and so I think that speaks for how well it's gone. Plus, the production itself has gone super. Columbia plans to have the film ready for broadcast sometime in the fall of 1982. Philip Bruce, New Scene 7, Fayetteville. This was during a recession in Arkansas yes. and the country. This provided it was a great shot in the arm. Yeah, big time money for Northwest Arkansas and the state. Well, and you know, a fifteen million dollar budget these days doesn't sound like much, but in '81 during yeah. a recession, that that was a pretty big budget, and they spent a lot of it here. As you know, Philip Bruce will say, after everything was wrapped and shot, uh, there was a newly formed film commission. And Philip Bruce, again, talked to the new film commissioner, first ever film commissioner at the time, Joe Glass. There are not that many projects being made, just like every other business. Production's down in the film business, like it is in automobiles. They're not making as much product. But uh, we certainly have a good, favorable reference to lean on with Columbia Pictures, and uh, we're optimistic that uh, we'll get another project here for the next few months. The Blue and the Gray was made here on schedule and under budget. In the process, Columbia pumped more than $10 million into the local economy. Still, Glass says the movie people got off easy by Hollywood's money standards. We're uh, in a rather depressed economic situation, and it's a bargain for these people to come here and spend their money with us. They get more dollar for dollar on the screen in Arkansas than they can anywhere in the country, and that I'm confident of. As you mentioned, this was the first major studio, major production done in Arkansas in in decades, if if ever really, of this level. Right. And it didn't just happen by accident. Well, no. And I had mentioned the financial aspects, and this was brilliant. No one had ever done this and didn't for years after. But they gave a financial incentive to filmmakers and came up with a five-cent rebate on every dollar spent. So I got a hold of Joe Glass, who's retired and living in Little Rock, 
and he recalls the idea of making that offer. And I, I molded over and molded over, and I, finally it just kind of came to me one night. My my wife will never would never forget it. She said, "Suddenly you just popped up out of bed. And you said I got it." And she said, "What do you have?" I said, "I know how we get them here. They're these guys, just like they were telling us." They're bottom line folks, too. Somebody making decisions is looking at the money. What if we, uh, what if we've got numbers here that says the state makes 5.1 cents in taxes on every dollar spent here from a film company? What if we gave them a nickel of it back? State would still be making some money and all the local taxes and all the jobs and all of that. State still be doing right. It won't cost us anything. And what... I either didn't know or had forgotten until you started working on this again, Randy, is that this wasn't Arkansas following the lead of some other state. This was innovative at the time. No, we were the only ones, and it wasn't until about eight years later that I believe Louisiana uh, caught on. It you know now it's commonplace. Everybody's Georgia, doing, especially Georgia. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to talk to the current film commissioner, a friend, Christopher Crane, and the effect that the, you know, blue and the gray had on, you know, sort of long-term on the state. The whole thing was new to everybody, but uh, this state pulled together like this state can, and uh, there's just not anything we couldn't do. And uh, passing that nickel rebate, like like I said earlier, I think... uh, it was maybe eight years later in uh, 1990 that uh, Louisiana followed up, and they went gangbusters. And, of course, what it did, was, according to the Motion Picture Association, was it changed the way films were financed. Now all the, state, all the studios were getting money offers from all these different states and help them finance their films, and suddenly it was an industry, and suddenly people across the country, because... The companies, the big companies, were going on location. They uh, they had opportunity for Arkansans, and Arkansans working in Arkansas and, and in Louisiana. So, Blue and the Gray, of course, 1981. It's being filmed. It's on television in '82. Uh, we all remember True Detective a few years ago. Yes. The HBO uh, series was filmed here. Mud. Oh yeah, and Mud, and and, and some some others. Um, well, just recently, uh, Meg Ryan yeah. shot it. What uh, happens later? Yes. At, at the airport in Crystal yes. Bridges. You had uh, the Billy Bob Thornton um, sling blade. Oh, gosh, One yes. false move. Where are we going now in the future, I wonder, with film? Funny you should ask. Okay. And I asked Christopher Crane, and this is what he had to say. In 2009, uh, we went away from uh, then, which was a tax back, uh, not a nickel rebate, but a tax back, and... You know, with the help of the, the governor's office and the legislature, we were able to pass a, a modest incentive that was based upon an economic impact analysis that we did, uh, which was a 15% uh, rebate and then an additional 10% for crew. Uh, and since then, we have tweaked it and, and worked with it. And, uh, you know, now we've got a, a 25% base, uh, you know, with some additional caveat um, you know, incentives and, and boutique incentives uh, that uh, you know a, a production company coming in can get you know 30% back uh, upon expenditures, and we've gone from you know from the blue and the gray to producing 
you know, uh, true detective, uh, you know, which had over a hundred million dollar impact on Northwest Arkansas, uh, you know, and mud and, and, uh, my gosh, we've, we've had, uh, you know, we go, we've, we've seen, you know, 15 to 16 feature films being produced in the state over the past few years. Uh, and we're on, uh, you know, we're on pace to beat that, uh, this year. Now, you can walk around the University of Arkansas campus and see some places that were in the film. Carnell Hall, which at that yes. point was in some disrepair, but the front porch served as the Appomattox Courthouse. Right. Where Robert E. Lee surrendered to, to Grant. Uh, also, this will show you how long ago this was, <laughs> my freshman year, Old Main, then still officially called University Hall, but we all called it Old Main, was really in disrepair, and they were closing it because – it was falling down. That's right. So if you've lived here a long time, you may remember for several years there was a chain link fence around Old Main. While its fate was determined oh, yeah. whether it was going to come down mm-hmm. or whether it was going to be renovated. I'm so glad that didn't happen. Yes. <laughs> the The week before that chain link fence went up, a facade was put on what would be the south side okay. of Old Main. So the side of Old Main that faces Gearhart Hall, then called Ozark Hall, mm-hmm. I'm sounding older and older every you sentence. You are old. Yes. Um, <laughs> a facade was put on the south side of Old Main, and it was Ford's Theater. Oh. And so John Wilkes Booth runs out of a, of, a, of a false front on the south side of Old Main. Speaking of Ford's Theater, uh-huh. um, when the president was shot, you know, we had talked earlier yes. about – Arkansans being in as extras and maybe some speaking roles. A prominent Arkansan did have a speaking role, and that would have been the late athletic director and coach, Frank Broyles. He had two lines. Two lines, um, and we found them for you. Uh, it's um, he, he was the, the doctor who was treating the president after he had been shot. Dr. Mudd, right? I believe that's correct. So here we go. How bad is it, doctor? The wound is mortal. All we can do is wait. The president is dead. Post stopped at 7.22 and two seconds. This takes me back. This was, it was a fun time in Fayetteville. Yeah. It was it was fun to cover, and you talk about you know when True Detective was here. I'm old too. Yes, <laughs> when True Detective was here to film a story set in Northwest Arkansas and it was filmed in Northwest Arkansas. That's not always the case. The next season of True Detective, which begins any day now, is set in Alaska, but they didn't film it in Alaska. They filmed it in Iceland. So you don't always get it. That's true. You know, well, True Grit. It yeah, takes it place in all in yeah in Arkansas and. Oklahoma yeah. was yeah shot in Texas and Colorado. Yeah, Did you watch it when it was on the air? I know you worked yes. for an ABC station. I think oh, yeah. everyone here did. Yeah. Oh, I think so, yeah. yeah. And I've gone back and watched parts of it. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and watch the whole thing and sometime was, in the next few weeks. And it was a huge rating success as well for CBS. It paid off. Yes, it did. And that's back when miniseries Oof. were ruled. Yeah. So yeah. – and it had a great soundtrack. Well, let's go out with that theme. That sounds great. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Put Pryor Center into an archi- into a search engine. You'll find all sorts of time-sucking activities that you can partake in. <laughs> I go in a rabbit hole. That's right. Thank you, Randy. 
The annual Arkansas Black Film and Music Expo, hosted by Music Moves, returns to the Fayetteville Town Center next month. We asked Anthony Ball, Vice President and Program Director of Music Moves, and Grady Matthews, a board member of Music Moves, to tell us more. Anthony says the Expo is a premier event for Northwest Arkansas-based Music Moves. I always tell people, so the, the Arkansas Black Music and Film Expo is actually, that's if we had to nail down one event that kind of, um, sums up our mission to bring art and culture, black black art and culture no, no, uh, to Northwest Arkansas. It's probably this event. It's a vast event. Uh, we do everything from from panel discussions to uh, performances. We got a marching band, a HBCU marching band that's coming. Um, we have film and uh, film producers that's going to be a part as well too. We got local talent. We have national Grammy award winning talent. So uh, this is this is my favorite event because it just puts on a huge um, uh, a picture of what Music Moves really wants to do in Northwest Arkansas. Who's it for? Is it for just fans of entertainment, people who want to have a career in entertainment? So because it's such a vast event, it's, it's for a vast target of people. We have a family event that happens um, Saturday, that Saturday, February the 10th, uh, along with that parade, the Mardi Gras parade. Um, so it's a family show where we'll put on uh, educational performance. We're talking about how uh, jazz influenced hip-hop. So we'll have that. We'll have a gospel choir, the community gospel choir, uh, a part of that. So that's a, that's a family deal. We have something late night. Uh, for the adults, uh, um, and we also have something for just the art community, you know, that want to be a part. So a lot, we're hitting a lot of different uh, communities with this event. This strikes me as something that's intergenerational. Like, just the idea of you're talking about jazz influencing hip-hop, because, I mean, if you're, I don't know, 20s, 30s, you've grown up with hip-hop, you didn't know mm-hmm. when it didn't exist— May not know how important jazz was. Yeah, and and that's that's why we want to put this on in this way because we want to bridge the gap. Uh, uh, these are different genres, but it's a lot of the same ingredients. Uh, and we want to we we when we talk about black roots music, um, there there are. Um, sub genres that that branch off from these these uh, these big these big genres. So we just want to tie the dots and, and show people it's not so different. And and, and in a sense, we want to also provide um, opportunity for families to have discussions about it and 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 maybe cross some uh, bridge some make some bridges for the teens to kind of you know make a little bit more sense to the um, the grandparents and the parents. And in, in reverse, you know, <laughs> the the parents and the grandparents can understand the kids a little bit as well too we're not so much different you mentioned discussions among family members and generations what are the discussions like with board members and staff when you're talking about an event like this and, and what you want to get out of it so a lot of what we talk about as board members is just ways as anthony said to kind of bridge the gap between generations and even from different people you know um, different cultures different backgrounds all of that stuff it's interesting to go to an event like this and realize, man, most of the music I I love like came from, you know, generally a black roots music back to jazz or blues or things that were very, you know, we see as very American, but they they had much deeper influences behind them and just a great way for people to connect with other people. And that's that's the big part of what music moves is about is people finding ways to connect with other people. Who are some of the folks that are coming in? You mentioned local talent and that's great. 
Yeah, you know, man, so of some- course. So um, so uh, uh, returning back from, from our uh, Freedom Festival last year, we got Young Jock. He's a, he's a, a, a Grammy-nominated hip-hop artist that's going to be a part. We have— uh, And a cool guy, too. He's a nice guy. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. got to hang out with yeah, him. He, to- <laughs> he hosted him last, last year. They made good, good friends. Uh, he's trying to get him to, to, uh, to move to Northwest Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also have—everybody uh, may know her from uh, Fresh Prince of Bear Lair, Unviv. Uh, her name is Daphne Maxwell-Reed. She'll be a part to talk about her career uh, in, in film, uh, film and in theater and all those deals as well. Of course, theater with the U of A, they have a huge theater department, so the U of A will be a part of that as well. And and Life Jennings, he's, he'll be making a, a debut. He is a, a Grammy-nominated uh, R&B artist. So really excited about having him down. Uh, he's from the Atlanta area, from the South. Um, so he was really big in the early 2000s. So I'm, I'm really excited to have him down as well, too. And then we just got a slew of, of, of local regional talents uh, to support those acts. There's, there's a partnership with Daybision. The film yes, production company. Mike Day, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's important. You know, when, when we're putting on these big events, uh, it's not to wave a music moves uh flag at all. Like we want to build these platforms for other other artists, directors, creatives to stand on as well too. So he's always done the work in the uh, in the film community here. So we want to partner with him. Uh, so we can deepen deepen those relationships and foster a greater uh, appreciation from the film side as well, too. Anthony Ball is vice president and program director of Music Moves, and Grady Matthews is a board member. The annual Arkansas Black Film and Music Expo is February 9th and 10th at the Fayetteville Town Center. You can learn much more at musicmovesar.com. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Songs. Dream Girl, take five. Dream Girl, Dream Girl, I love it so. Dream Girl, love it so. Oh, it's you. You dear that I adore. The story of Jesse Belvin is shrouded in some uncertainty, from his alleged hometown of Texarkana to his 1960 car crash death in southwest Arkansas. More certain is Belvin's status as a prime mover behind 1950s West Coast doo-wop. That music influenced everyone from the Beach Boys to Frank Zappa to pioneers in reggae music and beyond. But Belvin was said to be cavalier about songwriting credit and would sell his songs for immediate cash to others, who would then reap the long-term publishing. This makes tracking Belvin's influence and career still more difficult. Whatever events may have conspired to make him obscure, it's ironic for Jesse Belvin to be so forgotten today. He was once thought to be the next big crossover crooner in the mold of Nat King Cole. Late 1950s RCA Records promo materials even called him the Black Elvis. Lord knows I felt like a king other girls didn't mean a doggone thing. Jesse Lorenzo Belvin was born in 1933 in Texarkana. Or maybe it was San Antonio, Texas in 1932. His first mark in popular music was in 1950 as a part of the vocal quartet Three Dots and a Dash, backing R&B saxophonist Big J. McNeely on a single. But Belvin soon came into his own. Someone really loves you. Guess who 
like so many vocalists in doo-wop and rhythm and blues, Jesse Belvin got his start singing in church. And like another contemporary, Sam Cooke, Belvin was the whole package. A handsome singer, writer, and arranger, so talented and prolific, he lifted other artists with his creativity. Some of Belvin's best-known songs are by others, like Earth Angel by the Penguins. His first hit, Dream Girl, heard earlier, was listed as by Jesse and Marvin. Even his biggest solo hits, like Goodnight My Love and Guess Who, heard here as interpreted by Dean Martin, have been adopted by many others. Belvin sang with many a vocal group on small West Coast record labels like Cash and Hollywood, often under a pseudonym since he was under contract. In fact, Belvin recorded so prolifically for so many different groups, his full impact on doo-wop and beyond can likely never be calculated. You can hear Belvin singing with the Sheiks, the Californians, the Shields, the Clicks, and countless others. Sometimes the songs went nowhere. Sometimes, like You Cheated by the Shields, they went top ten. The bulk of Jesse Belvin's work done under his own name was for two larger independent labels in Los Angeles, California, Specialty and Modern. In 1956, Jesse Belvin again hit pay dirt when the ballad Good Night My Love became an R&B hit. The song was adopted as closing theme music of programs by both Alan Freed and Dick Clark. By the late 1950s, Belvin's talent was recognized enough that he signed with major label RCA Victor. Elvis Presley had recently signed there also, and the company's PR team began a campaign branding Belvin as the Black Elvis. Belvin's sound had matured through the 1950s. Already conversant in doo-wop and R&B, Belvin began trending towards standards, ballads, and pop during this time and the move paid off. Soon, Belvin had his first top 40 hit, 1959's Guess Who. With a major label solo deal, his first solo top 10 hit, and a big tour set for 1960, the new decade must have seemed full of promise for Jesse Belvin. But instead, Belvin's life ended on a highway in Hempstead County near Hope on February 6, 1960. Decades later, his music is as big as ever, even as Jesse Belvin's influence continues to reveal itself. Here in its entirety is Jesse Belvin with his hit, Good Night My Love, from 1956. Good night, my love. Pleasant dreams and sleep tight, my love. Tomorrow be sunny and bright And bring you closer to me Before you go There's just one thing I'd like to know Is your love Still warm for me Or has it grown cold If you should awake In the still of night Pleasant 
Jesse Belvin, said to be of Texarkana, who died in Hempstead County in 1960 with his hit Good Night, My Love from 1956. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merckx. Arkansas since 1998. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, what exactly does a billion dollars in proposed investments mean? If you look at the announced projects, so the ones that went public, uh, like the So Falcon Jet, you know, having their event in December saying we're investing $100 million. Uh, I think the largest one of the year was with West Rock Coffee uh, and the investment there with, with Six Hour. Those that were, that were kind of out in the news publicly, that was just over a billion a conversation tomorrow with Clint O'Neill. He's the executive director for the Arkansas Economic Development Commission. It's tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF Public Radio and 7 p.m. on Little Rock Public Radio. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today include Daniel Carruth, Jack Travis, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Our show is co-hosted by Kyle Kellums. If you ever miss an edition of Ozarks at Large, you can find our stories online at ozarksatlarge.com. At that website, you'll also find a way to subscribe to the free Ozarks at Large newsletter. That comes to your email inbox every weekday morning with the latest stories. Thank you so much for listening to Ozarks at Large today. I hope you're staying warm. If you're the kind of person who likes to get out of the snow, hope you enjoyed that time as well. We'll be back with you tomorrow with another brand new edition of our show. Until then, I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. Be well. The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers adventure and play every day. Families can explore more than 40 hands-on, interactive experiences designed to ignite curiosity and fuel creativity. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Hours, upcoming programs, and more at amazium.org.